Sometimes when we feel like we're going to burst into flames, but it seems like everybody else around us is acting normal, what you realize is that half the people around you are also about to burst into flames and you didn't know it because they're very good at managing that. Hey, Jen. You ready? Almost. I just have to close my 30 tabs that are open about the history of Luddites. Ooh, you're reading about Luddites? What are you learning? I am. I'm hosting a book club about it uh, in November. And I'm sorry, but I really misunderstood what Luddites were. I think in my head, I thought it was like rejecting technology for religious reasons. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it actually wasn't tied to rejecting technology so much as workers advocating for having it introduced more thoughtfully and in a way that protected them and their jobs. Hmm. Hmm. Any parallels to the current moment? Can't think of any. Glad we've moved past that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think Luddites is such an interesting concept because that term is used all the time to just be like, oh, people who hate technology. Yeah. And actually, it's like people who cared about protecting industries and jobs and like thinking about the impact of technology and I don't know I I'm personally interested in that yeah call me a Luddite (laughs) yeah exactly I am now proudly a Luddite oh but Sarah I could talk about that forever should we jump into the show let's do it okay well hello and welcome to per my last email the show about what to do when work gets weird I'm Jen Dionisio and I'm Sarah Wachter Betcher And Jen, what kind of weird are we talking about today? Today we are going to talk about something that I know is very much on your mind because you wrote a viral frickin' article about it. Gaslighting! Oh boy, did I, yeah. You know, that was over a month ago and my inbox has still not recovered from it. Wild! Yeah, it feels like that really struck a chord with a lot of people. Folks, if you missed... Sarah's article, it's called, Hey Designers, They're Gaslighting You, and we'll put it in the show notes. So Sarah, you want to dive into uh, talking about gaslighting? Ooh, yeah. Can we buy the credits for that Chicks song, Gaslighter? Oh, I don't know that. You know the Chicks, you know, formerly Dixie Chicks, but we don't really want to use the word Dixie anymore. Yeah. Uh, They have a whole song called Gaslighter. It's about one of their ex-husbands, but it could also be about corporate America. Yeah, it's definitely some parallels. I think we've talked about that on the show before. Yeah. Hey, Emily. Emily's our producer. Emily's out in the budget. Can we get Gaslighter? <laughs> I don't think it's in the budget, Jen. Oh, if only. <laughs> well, so Sarah, back to gaslighting. I always kind of try to be careful with that word. You know, knowing like gaslighting as a concept can sometimes be misused. Like I've been reading a bunch of articles lately about how so many people are bringing therapy speak into just everyday conversations, but without really kind of understanding the real meaning of some of these terms, you know, either oversimplifying or even weaponizing things like the term gaslighting. So since we are such thoughtful people, I want to ask you before we dive in, how do you define gaslighting? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that because actually several people have told me The only criticism or nit they have with the article is that they don't think it's really gaslighting. Hmm. Otherwise, I've received mostly uh, responses that are like, oh, my God, thank God somebody said it. Oh, my God, I feel like this. Right. 
And so I do think that there is gaslighting happening in organizations. And I can talk about kind of what that is and what why that is. But I think when we're talking about gaslighting, I like to go back to the movie Gaslight because that's where we got the word. And because it comes from a movie, it is not a word of psychological or therapeutic origins. So of course, it's going to have a meaning that is a little bit loose because it's about the plot of a movie. Yeah. Anyway. The movie's from the 40s, and in it, Ingrid Bergman, she plays a newlywed. And her new husband slowly manipulates her into believing that she is losing her mind. Because she keeps seeing the gaslights in their house flicker on and off. And he keeps telling her that she's imagining things. Oh, hysterical. (laughs) But not only are they actually flickering, he is the one who is making them flicker. So he is doing something and then telling her that she is crazy for thinking that that thing is happening. There's a whole lot of plot that I'm not going to go into. It's not important for our conversation today. But what I think is important is that gaslighting is really a form of psychological abuse that's about convincing someone to question their own sanity, to question their own experience of reality. And once they start questioning their sanity, then they stop trusting themselves And they end up dependent on their abuser's version of reality, right? Like if I'm Ingrid Bergman in the movie, I need my husband, who's the abuser, to tell me what the truth is. And his version of the truth becomes de facto my reality. That puts the abuser in control. And that's the point. So if we're talking about gaslighting in the work context, what were some of the things that you noticed where that sort of control and abuse is being performed on workers. Yeah. Well, there are a few big patterns that I was talking about in that article that I see, you know, in the kind of work that we do. And this is very much focused on sort of people within a design or design adjacent space in a company. But it's things like being told that what you need to do is like justify your job. But it's for a job that they already hired you to do. Like, if you didn't know you needed me, why did you hire me? Yeah. Why does this department exist? (laughs) Exactly. Why do I have to explain to you that I deserve to be here? Like, should you have not discussed that before you made an offer? That's one. Another one is being told like, that you need to prove your value. And then you do all this stuff to try to quote unquote, prove your value. And then you're told that you still haven't proven your value. Mm. Yep. Hear that a lot. And then kind of related to that is this message that like, You know, the reason that your organization doesn't care enough about human-centered design or doesn't care enough about doing good user research or doesn't care enough about being inclusive or thinking about users who have disabilities or whatever it is, right? That the reason that that's happening is because you didn't work hard enough, you didn't make good enough slide decks, you didn't do enough advocacy, that if you had just been better and worked harder, then your organization would get it and they'd care. But we're actually talking about like shareholder-driven corporations or VC-backed companies that are really like operating under a single mandate, which is all about making money or scaling fast, right? Like their priorities are, are not that. And so I see that as gaslighting because what you do is you keep working harder and harder trying to achieve this mythical thing that they tell you is possible if only you were a little different. And... You keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, and you keep getting told the same message, like you haven't done enough. And I think what that does to people, again, is it shifts their sense of reality. They start to lose their own perspective on their own worth, their own value, 
they start to like lose connection to the reason they got into this work in the first place. And they start really being dependent on the organization's definition of reality. And it's really damaging because it causes more and more overworking and fewer and fewer rewards for that overwork. Yeah. And that's the gaslighting working for the company, right? Because they've just manipulated you to kind of like sacrifice yourself and your sense of reality and go along with whatever they want. God, and you're right. I feel like this is something I have been talking to a lot of clients about, you know, especially when they start to come out of that moment where they're like, wait, maybe it's not me. And there's so much surprise and kind of horror that they didn't notice it until now or that they kind of accepted the company line as as the truth over their own. Yeah, and I think that this idea that like, it's me, I'm the problem, it's really pervasive. And part of that is that, you know, oftentimes it's what you're told, like that's literally what the organization trains you to believe. The other part is that our brains, like our brains are really primed to take things on as our personal responsibility or our personal fault, because in a lot of ways, that's actually easier for our brain to wrap its head around. Like, if I believe it's my fault, then I'm in control still and I can fix it. But if I believe that it's like this big organizational issue or societal issue, that starts to feel overwhelming. And so sometimes our brains will actually recast situations as if we have more personal control. So like, if I just work harder, then I can fix it, gives me a fake sense of control. And so that's why I think it's really important to both talk about the system stuff, like what needs to change in our organizations? How do we hold them accountable? But also the personal stuff, which is like, how do we break free of that gaslighting? And how do we recognize it and learn not to internalize it so that we don't wind up in these places where we're like overburdening ourselves? I mean, I imagine your options really change when you are aware of those sort of structural issues. You know, it's not that there aren't things that you want to do yourself, but without that kind of awareness, you could really just go down some very different paths that all exhaust you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how we we tend to do around here. It's like, Mm -hmm. we want to do the personal work. Like, what are the things we can do for ourselves? This is our life. How do we take control of our lives? But how do we do it in a way that is really like aware of the systems and structures around us and sort of the political landscape or or social landscape so that it doesn't just fall into just another story about how you have to fix yourself? Yeah. And it's more like how you have to get some distance from all that BS so that you can learn to live in the society as it exists right now. Yeah, Sarah, you're right on. And I think that's a perfect lead in to starting our first question of the day, which is coming from someone we'll call DB for do better. And I think you'll see why. I'm currently sitting on my company's first ever employee resource group for women in the workplace. I'm in tech consulting and it's incredible to me that it's 2023 and this didn't exist before now. But the worst part is that the highlights of the advice given by this panel are to be more assertive, build a social network, create a personal leadership style, and focus on work-life balance. As if those are suggestions that make sense for women and or as if those are the kinds of things that really make a difference to include women in leadership roles in the corporate world. This feels very much like a box being checked to report back to a board of directors or meet some ESG guidelines without any actual teeth in them. Why are women expected to do all of the work to make women successful in the workplace? 
How do I contain my frustration so that I can continue to be a positive influence in my company and on my team when I'm expecting to burst into flames at any moment? I know this is a particularly difficult challenge in the tech industry where gender parity is much more difficult to come by, but this approach feels worse than them doing nothing. Telling a group of women how valuable we are as if we don't already know is infuriating. Covering this topic in a company-wide all-hands would be more impactful. Well, clearly, DB just needs to be more assertive, right? Mm, yes, well, as long as she's not aggressive, oh. because you got to stay likable. Yes, absolutely. Just <laughs> gently assertive. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, that was too much, sorry. Oh, no! Oh, wait, let me lower my voice also. Ugh. <laughs> Big groans all around. And Sarah, I think there are a few topics to tease out of this single dilemma. But before we talk about how DB can kind of hold back her frustration, let's talk a little bit about why she's so frustrated. Let me ask, what is your experience with employee resource groups? Yeah, uh, let's talk about ERGs. Quite an evocative sound. ERG. 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 I've worked on a lot of programming with ERGs, like workshops for ERGs, especially women's ERGs. And they can sure feel like an erg. (laughs) My take is that they're great in theory. The idea is that an erg is a place where people from a particular group that is underrepresented in the workplace or that faces specific challenges in the workplace or that is systematically oppressed in society, like where they can get together and talk about their experiences and their needs and how the workplace can support them. And so you might have one that is for LGBTQIA folks. You might have one that's for people of color or from a specific ethnicity or background, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so that sounds great, but I think in practice, they can just be all over the map. Mm. And I I think a lot of it depends on how seriously the organization takes them. Mm. So at their best, what I have seen is that the ERG has funding and support from leadership. Like they have a budget. And what that signifies is that the organization takes that seriously as something that is worth investing in and as something that is real. And so, for example, in the I think in the best scenarios, the people who are running the ERGs actually get paid to do it. For example, at LinkedIn, they pay an extra 10K a year as an extra bonus if you are leading one of their ERGs. Right on. And in other places, it might not be additional salary, but it's a specific percentage of your time that is formally allocated and protected for that work. And so again, it really says this matters. We believe this is valuable work and we are invested in it. As opposed to the other way of seeing it, which is sort of like, this is some volunteer shit that you have to do because you're a woman. Oh, that's been Don't you support other women? all of my experiences. <laughs> yeah. So that's one piece of it. And then on top of that, I think the organization has to trust the people who are running it and the members of that group to figure out what that community needs. What are the real challenges that they face and what support would be most helpful I have seen situations where there's kind of like directives given from, let's say, HR or something like that about what the ERG should be doing or like what kinds of speakers it should have. And then the ERG is allowed to go find those people. But it's like kind of predetermined areas that somebody else has decided matter. Like, ladies, you all need more confidence. (laughs) You can tell how I feel about that. Uh This is really where I think a lot of ERGs stall out. Because when the challenges that people face in the organization are because of the organization, what the ERG needs to be able to do is surface that to leadership in the company, right? They need to be able to say like, hey, this is what we're hearing amongst this community of, let's say in this case, women, right? This is what we're hearing amongst this community. Can we elevate that to leadership and have them actually do something that would improve the experience of this group in this workplace? Or, hey, we've realized in this group that 
Our org as a whole could use some training around inclusive language or like common gender bias situations at work. And that that actually becomes something that the whole group is trained on, as I think our letter writer mentioned, right? Yeah. Basically what that is, is like the erg becomes a way to surface what that community needs and then to bring those needs to people in the organization who can actually make changes. That's rare because I think in a lot of situations, what actually happens is that the erg is there to just sort of like be a nice place for the people in that group to go but there is no real dialogue between what's happening within that community and the broader organization. Yeah, that's what I've seen in, in previous clubs. Yeah. yeah. It's like, great, we had a group coaching circle run by us and it goes nowhere else. And I do think that there can be value to that. I don't think that there is no value to that. I'm going to get to that in a second. But I think that the value to that is limited, right? Because it's it's not actually going to shift the organization at all. It might help you survive and figure out how to cope within the organization. It might help you feel less alone in the organization. It might give you strategies. And that could be a great thing. Yeah. But it is not going to shift the organization. So the thing is, to shift the organization and to be able to, like, learn something from the members of your ERGs and do something with it, the company would have to feel comfortable acknowledging that it is getting some stuff wrong and that it needs to change. That oftentimes is not the case. And I think that's where the gaslighting really kicks in because what ends up happening is the erg doesn't really have any power outside of itself. And so then all they can really do is give advice that's very individually focused, like be more assertive, but not aggressive and like speak up more, but but not like that. And like act like a boss, but don't forget to be a team player. And that's, that's really where so much gaslighting happens because they're trying to figure out how do we give this community something helpful without ever thinking about the context that it sits within and without ever naming that, right? Because the organization doesn't want to name like, this is shit you have to do because we're biased. Right, right. So like I said, I do still think that an ERG can be a valuable space in an organization, even if it's not well supported or even if like what happens in that group doesn't make its way out. If members get support from one another, if they can vent to one another, if they can build more solidarity with one another, I think all of that is meaningful. It can really help people have more sustainable and healthier experiences in imperfect workplaces, which is all of them. However, the, the thing is, you can't do that without a baseline sense of safety within that ERG group. That means you cannot create that space where you can support one another, where people vent and feel like solidarity if you are gaslighting people with the content of your ERG. So if all of your meetings or events are about like, be assertive, but not aggressive, and all of that kind of lean in stuff, then you're not going to build the trust and safety that you need because you're not telling people anything real, right? Like they can smell that a mile away. And so if you don't tell them anything real, then it doesn't feel like a safe place to talk about the actual real shit. So I think that that's what what people who are running ERGs can really do is to say, how do we make this a space where even if we don't have influence outside of this group, where at least people feel like they can be honest within this group. And that's definitely by not bringing in like speakers or presentations that are going to gaslight them. Yeah, it is more of that like connection to other people. And I think what you just said, something that I think really stood out to me in terms of not formal ERGs, but groups I've been part of in workplaces where... Yeah, we had no influence out of each other, but the ones that felt successful were like, we are all committed to supporting each other through the challenges that nobody cares about with us. Like, so how do we support each other through that? And I do see that there was value in that. It just didn't 
change the the wider context. Yeah. And so going back to DB's original question, she's both bursting into flames and also trying to be a positive influence on her team. I mean, my first thought was like, are those at odds? Maybe they can work together. So I'm curious from you, Sarah, like, is there a way that she can channel that frustration into something meaningful? Yeah, I hear your tension, DB. And I think on the one hand, it sounds like you don't want to totally give up on this erg, like that there's part of you that wants to make a difference there. But there's also another part of you that wants to kind of like flip the table, bounce out of there, throw your middle finger up. And I'm thinking, you know, what do you do with this frustration? Is it worth sticking around in this group? To start to answer that, Jen, I think there are a few factors here that I would suggest DB consider. If we're working together, I would actually suggest that she start with this burst into flames feeling. Mm. Because that sounds like anger. (laughs) And um, anger is something a lot of women have been trained not to express or even to admit to feeling. And that means that a lot of women are really good at pushing their anger down to get on with it. DB, if that has any resonance for you, I want you to take a different tack here. I would challenge you to find out what happens when you really let that rage exist. And by that, I don't mean like lashing out and throwing the middle finger up during the ERG meeting or in front of your team or like just bad mouthing it to everybody, but more give yourself some time and space and let yourself burst into flames. Let yourself be mad. And really notice how that feels. Like, how does it feel in your body, that heat, that sting, that hurt? Because anger is not a bad thing. Anger is a natural emotion. And anger can also be really clarifying because anger is a very sharp signal that something is wrong. And so if you push that down, it's hard to figure out what exactly is wrong. But when you let yourself feel that rage that has been building, and if you let yourself kind of lean into that a little bit, let yourself go up in flames you might notice some things like what's really at the heart of that hurt. What is it about this approach that you found so untenable, unacceptable? And what is that underlying like unmet need that you have? Like what is that pain that you're feeling? And so DB, I would really encourage you to spend some time there, maybe more time than is totally comfortable. Uh, I think for a lot of us, we feel a pressure to, again, push that feeling down or like move past it quickly. And my take is that until you give yourself space to really feel that hurt, it's going to be really hard to decide what to do here because you're going to be trying to decide what to do from this place where you're like on the one hand, really angry and the other hand, trying to tell yourself, I just need to be there for my team. And that's going to lead to a lot of kind of like ping ponging or decisions that don't really feel totally right. And so slowing it down and letting yourself sit with that anger can help you figure out what you want to do and decide like, Do I want to divest from this erg? Like, do I want to stop being part of it? Do I want to just accept that it is what it is? Do I want to try to change it? So DB, that's my encouragement is for you to start there. I'm so glad you said that because I know as somebody who's never very comfortable with feeling anger, like even if nobody ever knew about it and it's just in my head, I want to push it away as fast as possible because it makes me feel bad about myself. But I know like when you bypass those like dark, ugly feelings, you end up really not having a clear picture of what's really bothering you and what you need and kind of thinking of what do they say? Like fire is like a purifying ritual. I'm just picturing DB in very productive flames and kind of walking out on the other side, you know, very clear hearted. Yeah. Like walking through that fire and coming out purified or clarified. Yeah. Okay. So DB. 
once you've given yourself some space to feel and once that anger isn't something that's like being swallowed down, I think you might have just a little bit more space to reflect on things. Once you're ready, here are some of the things I would encourage you to reflect on. So first of all, what were your hopes when you joined the ERC? What do you want to see happen? If you can set aside all of your critique of the current situation, which is valid and important, but setting it aside right now can get very wrapped up in the sort of negative, this is all the stuff that's wrong. Setting that aside and really asking yourself more generatively, what would a really great ERG look like? This process is really about knowing your values, clarifying like what kind of ERG would feel aligned with them, really getting a sense of what do I wish existed here? What is the sort of like positive thing I'd like to work toward? Doesn't mean you have to build that yourself. It doesn't mean you're now responsible for making that vision real. But I think knowing that is really helpful for getting a sense of like directionality. Like what does good look like? Not just, you know, critiquing and tearing down the thing that they created. Which again, I agree that it sucks. Totally. Okay, so then after you've thought a little bit about, you know, your hopes and dreams for what this could look like or should look like, DB, I would encourage you to also think about yourself and your place in the organization. What kind of influence or power do you have? This might be based on your level in the organization or your tenure at the organization, but it can also be informal types of power, like connections you have or relationships you have with powerful people or who listens to you. You know, I've definitely worked in organizations where there were people who really carried a lot of soft power and they were not in positions of extreme authority. They didn't have large amounts of the org reporting into them, but they had a voice people listened to. And that is a form of power that I wouldn't underestimate here. In addition to thinking about your own power and influence, though, DB, I would encourage you to think about kind of safety you have in the org. Have you spoken up before? If so, how was it received? What have you seen happen to other people who speak up? Kind of how risky might it be to be somebody who starts talking about the problems in this erg and what it could be or should be? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the safety piece because it really does end up dictating like how much of yourself you end up comfortably sharing. So let's say, you know, there is some modicum of safety within the organization and DB is reflected on all of these things and is making some moves to figure out how to move forward. Now what should she do? Yeah, so the idea is that these reflections give you information, DB, that'll put you in a better spot to decide what you want to do here. And what I like to think about is a range of options. It doesn't have to be just like suck it up or quit the group, right? Mm -hmm. For example, one direction you could take is to really focus in on bringing more critical conversation and solidarity into the ERG. Like we talked about earlier, right? Like making it a space where people can talk more openly and honestly, where they don't feel like they have to kind of like just parrot the lean in line, where they're able to be like, hey, isn't it screwed up that we're having this conversation in here, but it should be happening with everybody, not just with women? So to make that a safer conversation for everybody to have, somebody has to kind of start going down that path first. So what would it look like if you started a conversation with other members about your disappointment with the programming so far and kind of seeing what other people are thinking and feeling? I think sometimes when we feel like we're going to burst into flames, but it seems like everybody else around us is acting normal, we might think we're the only one. But actually, again, women are often trained not to express anger or even acknowledge that they have it, which means that sometimes what you realize is that half the people around you are also about to burst into flames and you didn't know it because they're very good at managing that. So do you feel safe enough to broach that topic, DB? 
if you brought it up for discussion that you want this group to be more than just about fixing women and to actually be about fixing the organization, what do you think? How might that be received? And do you feel like you have enough safety that you might be able to do that? The other thing is that not every woman in that ERG is going to be feeling the same way as you. And there are probably some people there who really want to be good advocates for women. They really want to show up for one another who are really like trying earnestly to make it a better place for women. But they are still too bought into the gaslighting to see what's happening. And so that might be another thing to think about. Like, what would it look like for you, DB, to help more of these ERG members kind of break out of the gaslighting? You have become aware. You're seeing what's actually happening. If some of these people aren't seeing it, what would it look like to be someone who helps open their eyes? Mm. And I want to say that I don't think this is DB's job. That is a lot of work to do. But it might feel like an important calling for her to be able to channel her anger in a way that it wakes some other people up. Yeah, you know, I saw something like this in an old job where I think there was International Women's Day programming planning happening within the org. And yes, it was a group of women who were organizing it. And, you know, me and some other managers got asked to like check in with our teams and see kind of what they wanted and needed in terms of programming. And God, I sent that email around and within like five minutes, somebody on my team responded, I would like to not make programming on International Women's Day. I would like a day off. Why must must Uh I create a PowerPoint Mm -hmm. presentation on like a day that I'm supposed to be recognized? You know, and I forwarded that onto the group and it was crickets. And I feel for both sides, right? Like, yes, these people were trying to really put together something that would be meaningful for the women in the organization, but it still relied on the women adding extra work to their plates on top of what they were already doing. And you know, women are not a monolith, um, right? Like people have different experiences and people have different desires. People have different ideas about what feels empowering or what feels positive. But I think that... One of the things that is kind of important here is to remember that, DB, if you go down this path, you may encounter other women who are still living in that gaslighting or who have a different perspective than you. And that might be deeply frustrating because you could start feeling like they're reinforcing the status quo. They're part of the problem. And that might be true, right? Like they they may be part of the problem. But I would also just try to hold space for the fact that they're, they're also victims of that same oppressive BS. They're not really the root cause here. And it might take a while for them to kind of come around. So it's okay to be frustrated at their complicity. But I would say that I, I would just think about where the real heart of your rage is, because I don't know that focusing on those folks is going to be helpful to your well-being, to your relationships, or to the cause. And then there's another thing I was thinking about here, DB. What would it look like for you to pitch a different sort of event? For the ERG. Ooh. Like an event that's for the whole organization and not just for the women. What do the women from the ERG feel like the whole organization really needs to hear? And what would it look like to have the ERG sort of like set something into motion that made its way to staff as a whole? I don't know what it looks like in your organization, but I feel like this might be an interesting area to, to look into. It might not even be on other people's radar that this is something they could be doing. So like who would need to approve that? What would the focus of that be? How do you get other people on board to advocate for that? Now, DB, this is work. 
this is work mm-hmm. and it might be work you have to put in on top of your job for no additional pay and no additional respect. And it could also be work that if your org is particularly low on safety, could make you perceived as like more difficult instead of as a leader, which is what I think it actually is. Amen. So DB, what I really want you to know here is you don't have to take this on as your burden. You don't have to be responsible for fixing the organization. That is the organization's job, should it decide to do so. So think hard about what you have capacity to do, what you have the interest to do, what you feel like calling to do, and what you feel safe enough to do. And think about the costs. You know, there's not really a right answer here. You're not a bad woman or a bad feminist if you decide that being part of this group is just not worth your energy. But there is one thing I want to caution DB about, Jen. What's that? There's a choice that she could make, which is like, keep participating in the ERG and not say anything and just kind of suck it up and accept that it is what it is. Mm. This is an option. And... I have a suspicion that that option carries a high personal cost. Yeah, that feels a lot like stuffing it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that rage that DB is feeling right now, you know, she can slow down, process it, get some distance from it. But if she is like chronically in situations that trigger that kind of rage and chronically keeping her mouth shut about it, I think that that can really cause harm over time and can really lead to something called moral injury. Ooh, yeah. Sarah, can you say more about moral injury? Because I'm not actually sure if we've ever talked about it on the show before. And it's a really important concept. Yeah, yeah. So moral injury is what happens when you feel pressured to operate in a way that violates your values or your sense of right or wrong. So like a really acute example would be when doctors were having to like triage care during the worst of the pandemic because they did not have enough resources. They didn't have enough of themselves to give optimal care to everyone. And so they're forced to like choose who deserves better care than other people. Yeah. Awful, right? Awful. Another example of moral injury might be a physician in a state that has introduced anti-abortion laws. I've seen a lot of stories about this where they're telling people who are experiencing a miscarriage that they can't help them because they're at legal risk if they do. And it's like, oh, your whole job as a doctor is supposed to be to help people. And then you have all these like systemic things that make it hard to help people. We could talk about the medical profession in that context all day. So those examples are maybe more extreme. And the moral injury is pretty clear, right? Like I am supposed to help people. That is my whole job. And I can't. And that dissonance between what I know is right and what I'm actually able to do, that's the moral injury. And it causes just all of this psychological and emotional distress. What DB is experiencing is probably not that level of severity. um, But I do think there is absolutely moral injury uh, potential if she shuts up and plays along. So I want DB to really think about that before taking that option because it might protect her reputation and kind of like make it just not a thing, but at what cost? Like to her sense of self, her integrity, her soul is how some people put that. I've definitely worked with many, many women who sucked it up and smiled for a long time. And then at some point that pain became unbearable to them. And at the point that it became unbearable, it had already done a lot of damage. And so DB, I really want you to think about what it might cost you to kind of like push that fire down and to know that the more you let yourself feel your anger, I think the more you'll be able to see the different options available to you and what feels right to you. So um, go burst into flames. Full on Kablisi. 
I'm excited to hear what's on the other side of that fire. Oh, me too. Hey there, it's Emily, and I'm sorry to say Sarah, but unfortunately, the chick's gaslighter is not in our budget. (laughs) But onto more exciting things. If you are a listener of our show, you know that this year has been rough. You may also have noticed that people have had enough. The people-pleasing, value-adding, and perfectionism has gotten us nowhere. We say goodbye to all that and hello to a 2024 full of purpose, joy, and strategy. That's why we're closing the year with an event we're super excited about. It's called Reclaim Your Power, and it's a virtual mini retreat held on December 8th. You'll hear Sarah talk about how to become ungaslightable, Jen leading a panel on upholding boundaries in the real world, and two inspiring talks from Active Voice clients who have found courage and strength in being more of themselves. The event is pay what you wish and will be recorded if you can't attend live. So head on over to activevoice.com events to get your ticket. Again, that's activevoice slash events and click on Reclaim Your Power. We can't wait to see you there. Okay, Jen, is it time for a second dilemma? It is. I can already say that I am very excited to hear your thoughts on this one. So let's play it. I've been a content strategist for about 20 years. In my current role, I support 10 designers on five products and manage two writers. I'm also expected to lead the discipline, define the guidelines for our new tone of voice, and help document content guidelines in our new design system. Needless to say, I'm burnt out. My boss has told me that I'm not meeting expectations, and frankly, I don't care anymore. In a conversation a couple of months ago, I described my overwhelm, and she told me to prioritize better by holding office hours and lead more. She also said not to spend too much time on the writing because the team did fine before you got here. What I hear in that statement is that she doesn't think UX writing is important. In my recent performance review, she told me she didn't think I was a good fit for the role. I told her no one is a good fit for that role because it's not structured properly to set someone up for success. My question has a few dimensions. I was going to ask if this is a reasonable scope for a content role, but I really don't think it is. The burning question really is, what does leading look like in the context of this role? I believe leading looks like coaching writers and designers on the nuts and bolts of UX writing, which I've been doing. I think I'm leading from the ground up, so to speak, but I think my boss thinks leading is going to a lot of meetings and presenting decks. What does leading really mean? Ugh, death by slide deck is so real. Oh, so real. I've really been there. (laughs) So, Sarah, let's call this listener LM for lead more. Hey, LM, have you thought about just doing more? Yeah, that always fixes everything. Ugh, yeah. Okay. That said, I think there's a lot in here and there's a lot of different ways of looking at this situation. But before we get into the question itself, I just want to flag something. LM says that they've been told that they're not meeting expectations and that they don't even care anymore. And I want to call that out because if this is really the case, if you really don't care that you're not meeting expectations, LM, I'm not sure that it matters right now what I tell you about leadership. Because that to me sounds like you might be in a really deep place of burnout. If that's the case, like the real bone deep kind, I suspect you might not be in a place where it's actually possible or healthy for you to try to take in new ideas or try out new approaches. So like reframing and rethinking, those are things that become possible when you have a little bit more capacity. But when you're at the bottom of a big pit, it's actually not useful to try to do that. So LM, what I hope is that right now you kind of pause and get honest with yourself. 
are you open to and do you really have the capacity to look at the situation in some new lenses right now? And if the honest answer is no, I want to tell you that that's okay. Like it is okay to not be in that place. Trying to be in that place when you are not, when you are physically unable to be in that place, just makes it worse. Yeah. If you're in that place, I want to give you permission to like turn this podcast off because the odds are pretty good that everything I say is going to sound pointless and impossible and it might just make you feel worse. So if you really are in that deep of a hole, then I think the first thing that I would suggest is thinking about how do I get out of the hole and how do I heal? Is it a leave of absence? Do I have a therapist? What kind of self-care am I doing? How am I creating more emotional space between myself and my work? That kind of burnout recovery is a substantial long-term process. And LM, if that's what you're feeling, I would just really encourage you to focus there before you try to care about quote unquote leading. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, trying to put more burden and work and fight into your day when you're already kind of completely tapped and ambivalent is just a recipe to harm yourself even more. Sarah, what if LM steps back, like you suggested, and does feel like they have some capacity to figure things out? What then? Like, what might leading look like for her in this environment? Right. So I have some beliefs about leadership, and I think the biggest one that I've realized is that it's not about slide decks. It's not even really about having a team. The realization I had about leadership is that the core of leadership is actually about self-leadership, meaning taking responsibility and accountability for yourself and making active choices about how you want to show up. I think once we have some clarity on who we are and how we want to lead ourselves, there are a whole bunch of additional lenses on leadership that I want to talk about in a couple minutes. But those things don't matter that much if you haven't figured yourself out first. So the first thing I would encourage uh, LM to do is to really look at those leadership questions and make sure they have answers for them, right? Like, who are you and what, what matters to you? What's great about you? What do you believe in? Really know those answers because that's going to guide any other decision that you make. I will say that I have seen a lot of content folks really get stuck in this idea that because they care about content and because they are the content person, all content problems in the organization are theirs. Yeah. I I mean, I think you may know some of this feeling. I definitely used to have this feeling a lot where like I would feel this sense of like psychic pain when I saw shitty content go out the door. And sometimes it was my shitty content. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, I would feel this tremendous need to control all of it, to make it perfect, because that was my job, right? was like, protector of the content. And I get it. You know, you get into that work because you care about it. But this really breeds a lot of perfectionism and a lot of control issues. And guess what? Content teams are also typically pretty under-resourced. So if you combine perfectionism and control issues with an under-resourced team, that is going to create too much work for any human all of the time. Right. Like that's just the recipe for disaster because you are under resourced. There's not enough of you and you care so much about making it right. Then that becomes like a personal identity. Like I am the one who protects all the content. I feel like everything I hear from people who've been doing this is this realization that 
even doing that, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. It will destroy you and it will not actually change your organization. And that I think is a hard thing to realize, but I do think it's an important kind of reality to get comfortable with. And that means that like some stuff maybe needs to go off your radar because this is not a personal reflection of you as a professional or as a content person. It is a reflection of your company's investment or disinvestment in this practice. So if they have weak spots in their content, if they have products that have shitty content, that is not your personal failing. Mm -hmm. That is an organizational failing. And I think, LM, that's really important here because there is no way in the world that you or anyone can make content perfect for five different products working with 10 different designers. I would argue you can't even make it pretty good. You can be reactive at best, meaning like the designers are always going to be able to work faster than you because they're working on so many fewer things than you. And that's going to leave you in fix it mode or firefighting mode or cleanup mode means you're always showing up a little too late to do what really needs to be done. It means that your perspective is only ever happening on the like back end of the of the decision and never at the front end of the decision. No wonder you're overwhelmed. LM, that is overwhelming. And you're right, that is not a reasonable scope. But this is where I really want to come back to that self-leadership. While I don't believe that your org should stretch you in this way, the reality is that they have stretched you in this way. And you know it's not sustainable. You have 20 years of experience, and yet you are breaking under this pressure. So no one could do this. No one could do this. What a good point. And I feel like in the midst of these moments, I so wish that somebody had said those exact words to me. You know, this is not you just needing to work harder. This is a place where you're set up to fail. So you got to do the best you can without killing yourself here. Well, and I think even more, I would say, LM... I would encourage you to decide what is the best you can. What does that truly look like? Because when we start saying, I got to do the best I can, what sometimes that turns into is, I got to try to cover all the bases as best as possible. Ooh, no. Yeah, like keep all the balls in the air. Drop them. Yes. And so that's the thing. I think that doing the best you can is choosing what is the work that is going to be most valuable to the organization, that is going to be the most helpful for users, that's going to create the biggest impact, like figuring out your criteria and then stop trying to cover it all. Like what would happen if you used all of your knowledge and experience to say, you know what, here is what matters most to our users and to our business goals right now. And that means this quarter, the content team is laser focused on meeting these three objectives for products A and B. And that means products C, D, and E are not going to get coverage right now. I think this is really grounded in self-leadership because you cannot make a statement like that until you trust yourself. Yeah. And that's what I really want to encourage LM to think about. Take that two decades of experience and think about what would it look like to put a stake in the ground and have a really firm point of view about what matters, what to prioritize, and what gets cut. And you know, LM, the more I think about your question... I'm wondering if that's actually a little less risky than you might be thinking. Because, you know, I reread what you wrote about how your boss says to lead more and focus on the writing less. And I think I might hear something a little bit different than what you're hearing. Now, I don't know for sure because I don't know your boss, you do. And all I have is your letter. So maybe you are getting a lot of really pure gaslighting from them. But I'll tell you that when I read what you wrote, I'm hearing something else. When I hear lead more and focus on the writing less, I hear 
permission for things not to be perfect and permission to take a stand on what matters and just do that. That's a very different perspective than what we were talking about earlier. Right. And I might be wrong, but I really want to encourage LM to think about that because, you know, LM, I have been a worn thin content person and I've worked with a lot of worn thin content people. You are right. This scope is not doable and you do deserve more support. But it also sounds like you might be making it extra hard on yourself right now. If you've been unwilling to trust some of those non-content people to do the best that they can with some parts of this work so that you can free yourself up and focus. If you've been unwilling to kind of like get out of some of the weeds and make some calls about where to spend your time because you feel like you're responsible for all things content forever, that might be doing more harm than good. So one thing I want to challenge you on here is what if that belief that your boss doesn't value UX writing, what if that isn't quite right? What else might be happening here? Yeah, I mean, everyone who listens to the show knows you and I love a good reframe, but whether or not you think that you are clearly understanding what your boss is saying, I think the idea of even just experimenting with how you would move forward, knowing that your boss will support you, can be a lot more creative in terms of the options that you explore or test out before you rule them out as impossible. I love that too. I mean, it's not saying, my boss is gonna definitely support me, I'll just do this. It's saying, what would I do if I knew my boss would support me? And using that to kind of like break out of that rut and dream bigger. And you know, that's a question I would ask here. It's like, what would happen, LM, if you took your boss at their word and and quote unquote led more, meaning, showed up with a firmer point of view on what was and was not worth your very precious time. What would you do and what would you let go of? And you know, alongside that, what specific support would you need from them? As Jen mentioned, that would make that possible. Like where do you need them to step in and like remove a barrier for you? Or where do you need them to go talk to a product leader and get them on board or make it okay that their product area is not gonna get content support right now? These are hard questions. And I know it is difficult to really think about stopping, dropping stuff, letting things go. But I also know that caring about content does not require killing yourself for some corporation. And while having a strong opinion and saying no may have consequences, and I get that, stretching yourself the way that you have been has clearly had pretty awful consequences, right? Like, that's not working. You are overwhelmed and burnt out. And so, LM, I really encourage you to just consider reframing your approach here. Speaking of other lenses, Sarah, you said earlier that in addition to self-leadership, there are other leadership lenses to get into. What are some of those? Yeah, so I think leadership can look a lot of different ways and there's lots of different types of leadership and lots of different types of leaders. So let's first look at what LM is currently doing. So the way that they are describing their focus right now, coaching writers and designers, I would think of that as mentorship. And I think that's a form of leadership, absolutely. And it's something I really value. I think it matters a lot. Jen, I know it's like near and dear to your heart. You love that kind of work because it's about nurturing and cultivating and growing people. And like for tenderhearted people, that that sounds pretty good. And I want to say, LM, there is nothing wrong with that being your favorite part of leadership. There's nothing wrong with focusing there. There's nothing wrong with that being where you get the most joy. But that is only one aspect of leadership. It doesn't mean that every leader has to do every single aspect of leadership, but there are times when different types of things might be needed. And so there are types of leadership that are much more focused on working upwards and across. 
So managing up, I think, sometimes gets a bad rap. I mean, it it can be a gross term. Because often when people say managing up, what's implied is that like your job is to manage your manager, to people please, to justify your existence doing the job they already hired you to do. And like I think all of that is super toxic. But I do think that there is value in being able to work in sort of an upward fashion to be able to talk about the work you're doing in your group to people at a more senior level, to be able to understand what people at a more senior level care about and want, and then speak to those things. And I think that that particularly matters in moments when there's a discipline that is newer and is not totally integrated into the rest of the business. Because that's a time when people really do need to understand the value of what you do. And it's not about proving that value. It's not about trying to like justify that you deserve to be on the project. But it's about being able to show up in those conversations with a perspective, with information, with something that is valuable and meaningful to that level in the org. And so being able to think strategically and then share that with other people and be able to talk about both how your discipline can best be successful in the org, kind of like how your discipline works, but also how your discipline is contributing to the org's success. Those are the kinds of conversations that really need to happen upward. And then laterally, that is really about showing up as a peer with product leaders and design leaders, being able to take full part in conversations about product direction, about what's going on the roadmap, about how you want to approach problems. And that kind of lateral leadership, that is also a form of leadership that's really important, again, when a discipline is new, because people don't necessarily know what perspective you bring unless you're there to show it. Yeah. And I don't know if this is a trick for LM to adopt. I mean, I would get a little frustrated sometimes where I was like, oh, I'm so sick of managing up on on different topics. But something that made it actually feel less uncomfortable for me was when I really put it in my head, like this sort of like upward influence and lateral influence is actually really good for my people. You know, it ends up trickling down to them. So when I had that sort of point of view, it actually felt a lot less like, oh, let me defend my existence and more like, how do I get all of us what we want? Right. And I think that that is a really valuable perspective there that if you're only focused downward, you don't see. Because when you're only focused downward, it's like, okay, I'm going to give them mentorship or guidance on their craft. And I'm going to try to like protect them from the upward stuff. But it doesn't really create more space for them. They're still going to be facing like a wall of work. They're still going to be stretched way too thin. They're still going to be trying to juggle too many projects with not enough people. And that upward and outward leadership is really where you can start to build relationships and build understanding that lead to more investment. And that really has to start with saying some no's. Now, this upward and outward leadership, though, that might be where your manager is getting focused on like slide decks, LM. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I I don't think a slide deck is leadership. Um, (laughs) I do think that slide decks are a technique that a lot of managers think is going to lead to being seen as a leader in upward and lateral areas. What I have seen, I've observed this by working with people in a lot of different organizations, is that it doesn't really do that. It doesn't really work. Like make a deck is sort of this one size fits all advice that can feel really gaslighting because it's billed as the solution to all your problems and you spend like 50 hours on it and it just fizzles. Or like I've had people tell me like, 
I only got to slide five of my deck before I was interrupted 75 times by a VP (laughs) and I never even got to slides like six through 32. And it feels just like, why did you tell me this was going to solve all my problems? I would say that if you're getting advice to make a bunch of decks, I would really look at what is the underlying goal of those decks and like what are other ways that you might reach that goal because I suspect that making a deck is not actually going to do it, especially if it's a like what is UX writing deck because honestly, people don't really care. And it's not because they're bad people and it's not because they're trying to personally like leave you out. It's actually just because it's just more information. And God knows everybody gets so much information. Like how many meetings were they in today? How many emails did they get today? How many other things are currently like on fire in their workplace? I really think that it is healthy to remember that everybody has a lot going on and a lot on their plate and probably is dealing with the same kinds of challenges that you are just in a different way. And so... I would say meeting people matters a lot, like building relationships. Do you understand like the pain points and priorities of people who are in product, for example? What's your relationship with those designers that you're trying to collaborate with? Because I think that is really where you can start to share the expertise and the perspective and the actual value of your 20 years in content at a much higher altitude than just within the individual writing projects that you might touch. The thing about that is that like these are really helpful skills, but I also think it's it's true that like not everybody wants to do them. Yeah, I had a lot of colleagues who really loved, you know, the people management part of leadership but really didn't want to do any of that sort of like upward influence or, you know, relationship building. And, you know, it was hard because sometimes I feel like it came from a place of them really knowing themselves and how they wanted to spend their time. And that makes absolute sense. But I was always worried with some people that it was more like their absolute fear of that kind of work, you know, because it feels so much harder and higher stakes. And there feels like there's so much further to fall than with these very sort of intimate one-on-one relationships you have with your direct team. Yeah. And again, I think it's okay to say, I really love to do that work and that's where I want to invest myself. And that's kind of my specialty. But leadership, when we think about it more broadly, it does really require making decisions and being responsible for those decisions. Like that's kind of part of it is that you are taking ownership that Like, yes, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to be the one who takes the heat if it doesn't work. And so that means being able to decide things like, you know, where should resources go or what really matters here? And like, what does good look like? And that's definitional, right? Like that's that is a stake in the ground. So it's scary to have answers to that, to like have an answer and then tell people around you, tell leaders around you what your answers to that are. Because then it's like, well, they could disagree with you. They could think you're wrong. You could say this is where resources should go in the organization. And then they put the resources there and then actually it doesn't work. Like that's a possible thing that could happen because you are putting yourself out there and making decisions. That can be really scary and being nurturing and supportive and like kind of like helping lift others up can feel a lot safer. I would really encourage LM to think about this in the context of their self-leadership first, right? Like when they think about what they care about, who they are, their values, their strengths, the things they really believe in, the expertise that they're bringing. When they think about all that stuff, is it really that they want to focus on supporting and coaching others because that is their zone of like most powerful work and that's where they want to be in the world? Or is it because they feel nervous 
putting out a firmer point of view. What is not getting said because they're not showing up to those conversations? So I think that's a really helpful thing for Ellen to kind of like explore as they're starting to make decisions about whether they do want to change here or not. So Sarah, let's imagine that like LM has done this reflection and actually came out the other side being like, I don't want to do any of this managing up and out. What should they do next? Well, I mean, I think that's understandable. Not everything is for everyone. But what I would say is that LM, it sounds like your team is at a pretty crucial inflection point where only nurturing the writers who report to you is not going to alleviate the pain or lead to more resourcing. And so I think it is okay if you personally don't want to do that upwards and lateral leadership, but it sounds like the team needs that kind of leadership right now. And without it, there's going to continue to be this endless heap of work and you'll stay focused on helping your people do that work better. But like no one's going to be focused on getting more resources for the group or prioritizing the work or having strong opinions about what isn't isn't worth your time. And so I think the risk of staying a purely downward focused leader is that You know, your people might feel mentored and cared for for a while, but you and them stay stuck. And eventually it's not just you who's overwhelmed, it's everybody overwhelmed and kind of feeling like they're constantly failing. And so LM, my question to you is, what would it look like to embrace some of these other forms of leadership with the goal of building a space where the content team operates in a more sustainable way? And then alternately, what would it look like to accept that the kind of leadership you really want to do is mentorship? And to look for a content practice somewhere else that has maybe more maturity, where there's more groundwork in place. Maybe there's other leaders and more senior leadership roles who can focus on those aspects of leadership. And you can really go deep on being that supportive and mentoring leader that you really care about. Because I think in this current moment, in this current environment, it seems like you're experiencing sort of the worst of both worlds and it's really not serving anyone. So LM, honestly, it sounds like something has to give. And I don't want that to be you. You know, you're already pretty miserable and you're getting negative feedback on your performance. As you said, this role is not structured properly. So what would you have to lose by restructuring it? By designing a structure that would actually work for you and also for the needs of the organization in this particular moment? What's that job? I love you might find that there's not actually a Venn diagram where there is overlap between your needs and the organization's needs and... That's good to know because it's probably a sign that it's time to let it go and move on to somewhere that can better give you what you want. LM, no matter what, what I really hope for you is that you give yourself some space to kind of look at how you're really doing and what you need, because I do sense that you really could use some healing right now and that that might be the biggest thing that is going to serve you. Sarah, I think one of the saddest things about both of these listeners dilemmas is that it feels like they both feel like they only have two options at very big extremes. It's like slap on a smile or quit and entirely give up. And I hate that that is so restrictive when there actually are a lot of possibilities in that range. Yeah, you know, Jen, I think that's really a product of the gaslighting. Like, When you have been gaslit, it's so easy to believe in this other person's reality or this organization's reality. And when that happens, you lose your own sense of self-trust. You lose your sense of perspective. And from that lens, it's very easy to just feel like your options are go with it and accept it or become totally cynical. But when we can actually 
check in with ourselves and rebuild some trust in ourselves and rebuild a belief that like we're worthy and valuable just as we are right now. I think what that does is that allows us to see a lot more possibilities and get a lot more creative. And that is what I am hoping for, for our letter writers and for everybody listening today. Yeah, me too. And that's it for this week's episode. Per My Last Email is a production of Active Voice. Check us out at activevoicehq.com. You can also get all the past episodes, show notes, and full transcripts at pmleshow.com. This episode was produced by Emily Duncan. Our theme music is I'm a Modern Woman by Maria T. Buy our album at thisismariat.bandcamp.com. Thank you to Do Better and Lead More, who submitted their stories for today's show. And thank you all for listening. If you've got a work dilemma eating away at you, we'd love to hear it. Head to pmleshow.com to submit your story. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.